Welcome to week two of the Thin Red Line. This is our man series, but it's not just a series for men, it's a series for everybody. Uh, it's a series for men, it's also a series for everybody who interacts with men. And so if you're married to a man, you're dating a man, you're raising a son who's gonna be a man, this is a series for you. And throughout the series, what we're doing is we're trying to figure out how do we become good men? Because we've heard messages and ideas on, on what a real man is, what, what makes a man a real man. We've seen that maybe in society and culture and uh, movies and, and maybe some role models that we've had. And, and some of what we've seen, some of the imagery, some of the examples we've seen are, are really bad examples of what it means to, to be a man. So what we're doing throughout this series is figuring out how do we be good men? And the hypothesis of this series is this, that... that uh, at some point along our life, we've made a bad exchange. And so we've, we, we've been called and invited to be good men, but at some point along the line, we've made a bad exchange where we become inflated in our masculinity, we become tyrants and we just bulldoze over people. We've chosen a toxic version of masculinity. Uh, or maybe we've made a bad exchange and we've become subdued in our masculinity. We've become passive and weak in our masculinity. And so what we're trying to do is figure out how do we be good men. And when we get off course, when we get off track, when we get lost in the direction that we should go, it's often a good idea to go back to the beginning, to go back to the origin, to try and figure out uh, how we were created and what we were really made to be. And so that's what we're going to do Today, we're going to look back at Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, and uh, Genesis is the very beginning, and it explains to us how we were created and who we were made to be. And so Genesis begins with God creating all things. He speaks all things into existence, and so God says, let there be light, and there's light on the first day. And on the first day of creation, God separates the light from the darkness. On the second day, God creates sky. And then on the third day, he creates land and plants. On the fourth day, God creates the sun, moon, stars, the universe, the galaxies swirling all around. And then on the fifth day, God creates uh, birds and fish. On the sixth day, God creates land animals. And he creates all of this by speaking it into existence. And then late in the afternoon on the sixth day, there's this moment where God comes to the pinnacle of his creation. He creates his masterpiece, and he creates humanity. Here's, here's the idea that God had about creating humanity. We see it in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The them that's referred to here is not them and they, but them referring to the male and female. God created people, he and she, him and her. There's no them and they. He created them male and female. And then God stopped speaking after creating uh, all things, he, he, he speaks all things into existence. He says, let there be light and there's light. Let there be land and there's land. Let there be fish and there's fish. Let there be birds and there's birds. But then when he gets to the point of creating humanity in his own image, he doesn't speak us into existence. Instead, he stoops to the ground. And he uses his very own hands to form 
the image of a man from the dust of the ground. He doesn't speak him into existence. He, he, he gets dirty, and he forms him from the dust of the ground, and he breathes his very breath into his lungs. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And then God saw all that he had created, and it was very good. It was very good. And it was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And so God creates man from the dust of the ground. And when God creates man, and it says also uh, he created humanity, people, uh, male and female. And so this is what we find in the very beginning about all people, male and female, humanity, is that one, we were created good. God saw all that he had created and he said it was very good. And so you were created good. We're created in the image of God, not the physical likeness of God. God is beyond a physical likeness. He's spirit, but we're created in the image of God, the same character of God, the same um, attributes of God. And so we're created in the image of God. Men and women, you are created in the image of God. And we're created uh, to to co-rule with God. He says... um, uh, the, the Lord formed, uh, he said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky. And so you and I, people, humanity, men and women, were created in the image of God. We were created good and we were created to co-rule with God. And so this is true for every single person here. Now, when we talk about co-ruling with God, here's, here's what we need to understand. That everything belongs to God. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And so everything belongs with God, but it's amazing to me that God says to humanity, now you rule it. And so it all belongs to me, but I'm going to invite you to rule it as well. And when God does this, he doesn't abdicate his responsibility over creation, but he, and he doesn't invite us to rule it void of him or aside from him, he invites us to co-rule with him. So God invites each and every one of us alongside him to rule over creation. We are ruling with him, not on our own. And so as people, this is just what's true about us from the beginning, from this origin story, you were created good. You were created in the image of God. And you were created to co-rule with God. And so we see this is true for all people. Now, I want to show you what's true about men specifically. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so here's what God does with the man. He puts him in a garden, and he essentially says, this is your kingdom, and he gives him some responsibility in this kingdom. And so what's true for men is that we have a kingdom we've been entrusted with, and those within our kingdom are our responsibility. And so God puts him in the garden to work it. He's now responsible for something. And then he gives them some regulations to keep. You can eat from any tree in the garden, just not this one tree. 
And I need you to pass these regulations on to the people within your sphere of influence, within your kingdom, so that they know this as well. So Adam is given a kingdom, and he's given responsibility within this kingdom. And again, we're looking back at this to see how God designed it, how he formed it for the very beginning, so we can see what does this mean for us? How were we created? What's our responsibility here and now? And so God creates Adam, he puts him in a garden, he, he has a kingdom and responsibility. In the same way, every single man has been placed uh, with responsibility in a sphere of influence, we can call this your kingdom. And so men, you have been created to be kings of your kingdom. Now, there's several different options that you have when it comes to being a king of your kingdom. Being a king of the people within your sphere of influence. And everything within your kingdom are the people within your sphere of influence. It would be your wife. It would be your kids. It would be your future wife if you're not married. It would be your future kids if, if, if you don't have kids. It would be the men who are in your life as well. The people that you oversee are in your kingdom. And you have several choices when it comes to your kingship. And every man, there's a king within you. And you can be a good king. A king who protects, provides, and presides over your kingdom. This was Adam's role. Adam's role was to protect, provide, and preside over his kingdom. And you could be a good king, where you do this in a way where you bless others, where you lead others well, where you love others, where you serve others. This is a good king. Or you can be an inflated king, where you become a tyrant king. And so you've been given strength and power and authority and leadership, and you can use all of those things in good and great ways to bless and help those in your kingdom. You're a good king, or you can become inflated in that, become a tyrannical king, and use your strength and power and leadership and influence to just bulldoze over people. Just, I'm bigger, I'm stronger, and you can bulldoze over people, and you can become a tyrannical king where the people in your kingdom don't love you, but they fear you. That's an option. And some of you have experienced that in your life. Maybe it was your dad growing up. Maybe it was your stepdad. Maybe it was a boss that you had. Maybe it was your husband. We've experienced some tyrannical kings in our lives. The other option is that we become a deflated king, where we show up weak. We lead passively. We abdicate responsibility. And so this is another choice as well. So every single man, you were made to be a king. You've been given a kingdom. You've been entrusted with some responsibility. And the question is, will you show up as a good king, as a tyrannical king, or a weak king? And we've seen all these different examples of men in our lives. Again, maybe it was, was from your dad Maybe it was from a boss. Maybe it was from some male role model, someone who abused and misused their masculinity, and it hurt you, and it wounded you. Maybe it was somebody who just didn't show up like they needed to show up, and you needed them to show up. You were depending on them. You were counting on them. You needed them to show up in their strength and be a good king for you, but they were absent. They were a weak king, and that affected you negatively. But then... Hopefully there have been some men in your life who have shown up as good kings, and they blessed you, they loved you, they cared for you, they led you well, and those are the examples that you're grateful for. 
And these are the kind of men that we want to be good kings. And so Adam is placed in this kingdom, and he's given some responsibility. He's given some work to do. And then in Genesis 3, what happens is um, we see that Eve uh, is given to Adam as, as his gift. Eve is Adam's wife. And now here they are co-ruling with God, made in God's image, both made good. And so equal in those re respects with different roles. Eve is within Adam's kingdom. It's Adam's job and responsibility to lead her well. And what we see is there's this moment where Eve is tempted to do what God has told them not to do. And so God tells Adam, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden except for this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that. And there's all these trees that are available to them. If you ever hear this story and you think, why would, why would God do that? That, that? It seems so unfair. Why can't they eat from this one tree? Again, there are so many other trees, millions of other trees available to them. But Eve eats from this one tree that they're not supposed to eat from. And the reason why God set it up this way is because he wants to give Adam and Eve the option to love him. He wants to know that when they're following him, that they really love him, because love comes from a choice. In order to fully love somebody, you have to also have the choice to not love them. And so if they have no choice to rebel against God, to go against God, they're forced into love, and forced love is not love at all. And so God gives them a choice to rebel against him, to go their own way, to do their own thing, so that when they choose not to, when they choose to follow him, when they choose to obey him, he knows this is really love, and they experience that love. And so he says, don't eat from this tree. And then there's this moment where Eve is tempted beyond her restraint. She gives in, and she eats from this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then she gives some to Adam, and then Adam eats it also. And when they eat from this tree, what they're doing is they're rebelling against God. There's this moment where they're thinking, you know what? Maybe God's holding out on us. Maybe we know better than God does, and so we're just going to try this. And before you judge Adam and Eve, you and I do this all the time, every single day in our lives. When we choose not to go God's way, we're choosing to rebel against him. We're choosing to go against him. We're saying, God, I think I know better than you when it comes to money, so I'm going to handle my money the way I want to handle my money. God, I think I know better than you when it comes to relationships, so I'm going to handle relationships the way that I want to handle relationships. God, I think I know better than you when it comes to sexuality, and so I'm going to handle sexuality the way I want to handle it versus what you say. We do this all the time in all kinds of areas of our life, and Adam and Eve have this moment. Where they think, God, we think we know better than you. And so we're going to go this way. They see, And when they do that, feel shame. The scriptures say that their eyes are open. And they see that they're naked. And they feel shame about it. Now, before they ate from the fruit, they were naked in their nakedness. Because again, they were created good. Their nakedness is good. But what sin does is it takes a good thing and distorts it to make a, a bad thing. And so the nakedness that they were never ashamed of, now all of a sudden they see it and they're ashamed of it. Because now they're seen in all of who they are. They're vulnerable. And so they cover up, they hide because of their nakedness. They're ashamed. And shame is when we feel small. 
right? Shame, shame is when you feel small. Shame is when you're laid bare, all of your nakedness, all of your vulnerability, this thing happens and you just feel so, so small. And the thing that you want to do when you feel shame is to run and hide, to go towards the shadows and hide from the light of the truth. This is what Adam and Eve do. They hide because of their shame. And as they're hiding, covered up, ashamed of their nakedness, God enters the scene. And I want you to see who God calls out to when he enters the scene. It says this, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? God called out to the man. Eve was the one who ate the fruit first. Why didn't he call out to her? Because it's the man's responsibility. Because he's the king over his kingdom. Eve is entrusted to him. God calls out to the one who's ultimately responsible, which is the man. Right. He calls out to Adam first, even though Eve was the one who ate the fruit. Because Adam is responsible for those under his kingdom. Now, Eve is her own person. She made her own choice, but Adam is ultimately responsible. He's not in control, though. It's not Adam's job to control Eve. It's Adam's job to love Eve, to lead Eve, to serve Eve, not to try and control her. So the choice she makes is her own, but Adam is ultimately responsible for that choice because she's under his kingdom. So God calls out to Adam. He says, where are you? It the Lord God called out to the man, God, where are you? And I want you to see what, what Adam does. It happens so quick. It happens so quick. God calls out to Adam because he's the one responsible. Where are you? And he answered. And God said to him, who told you you were naked? I mean, in this question, it's almost this thing of like, who told you that was a bad thing? I created you good. Who told you that was a bad thing? Can I just say that, that, that some of you are living in the shadow of something God created as good, but somebody along the way told you it was a bad thing? Y you step up and took leadership and somebody called you bossy and you think that that's a bad thing? Now, maybe the way that you come across, you need to change that. I don't know. But the gift of leadership within you needs to get refined a little more because that's a good thing. But along the line, somebody told you it was a bad thing. Or you were real talkative in class and somebody said, you need to stop. See, the good thing in you is that you care about people and you think about relationships and maybe you need to control how much you talk. I don't know. But the good thing is that you care about people. But along the line, you thought that was a bad thing. Who, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said... The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. God calls out to Adam because Adam is the one who's responsible. And then Adam says, the woman you put here 
gave me some fruit. Do you see what Adam does here? He and on top of responsibility, the one who gave her to me. So God, it's not my fault, it's your fault. If you never put her in my life, this never would have happened. If she didn't offer me the fruit, I never would have taken it. Don't look at me, God. Look in the mirror. Look at her. Do you see how quick this king in his kingdom abdicates responsibility and blames other people? Yeah. What Adam should have done was said, you're right, God, I messed up. I messed up. Because I ate it too. And I shouldn't have. And so I take full ownership of this. I'm not going to blame anybody else. I'm not going to blame any circumstances. I'm not going to become a victim in this. That's a sign of a weak man, of a weak king. But instead, I own up. I take responsibility for what happened in my kingdom. That's on me. What would it be like if men, everybody really, but if men took responsibility of their stuff, how much different would the world be? What would happen if you actually took responsibility of what happened in your life? How would that change you? How would that transform you? How would you grow from that? I mean, you showed up late, take responsibility for it. You didn't do the thing you said you were going to do. Take responsibility for it. You had a bad attitude. Take responsibility for it. Don't blame somebody else. How much greater would we men be if we took responsibility, ownership of what happened in our kingdoms? Adam doesn't do it. He passes the blame. And this is a sign of a weak king. I want, to, I want to show you a couple things that we see from the origin story from the very beginning, from, from what we've read so far. Here's what we find out about men specifically. A man is an image bearer of God. That's true about women as well. A man is created to co-rule with God. That's true uh, for women as well. By working, providing, and keeping, protecting Everything entrusted to him with the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility, presiding. Men, your mission in life is to protect, provide, and preside. That's how God created you. And so this is your mission right here. Go ahead and take a picture of this. This is how we take notes here, by taking pictures. Take a picture of this because this is your mission in life. A man is an image bearer of God, created to co-rule with God by working and keeping everything entrusted to him with the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. This is what our origin story tells us. This is the mission of a man. This is how we were created to be. And by the way, I think this is a better story than the other theory that's offered to us when it comes to our origins. Because the other theory that's offered to us about our origin is that we're some cosmological accident, that you just happen to be and evolved. And in that story, I can abdicate responsibility. If I believe in the theory of evolution, I can abdicate responsibility because I'm a mistake. This is all an accident. This all just happened. Why do I need to be responsible? Because we're all accidents. 
with this theory of evolution, I can become a tyrannical king and justify it because it's survival of the strongest, survival of the fittest. And so I'm going to use my power and my strength and my leadership and my authority to, to, to power up and to bulldoze over people because it's survival of the fittest, baby. And so if you subscribe to the theory of evolution, don't blame a man when he abdicates his responsibility. He's just going along with what he believes he came from. If you subscribe to the theory of evolution, don't blame a man when he powers up and becomes a tyrant because that's what he's evolved to. But I just think this is a better origin story that you were made in the image of God. And you were made good and you were made to co-rule with God so that you could protect, provide, and preside over everything entrusted to you. They're both stories. They're both theories. And the question is, based, and, 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 and we have evidence that points either way, but really it's all up to you. What story are you going to believe? I just believe that the origin story we read from Genesis is just a better story because it makes better men. And so this is what we see. A man is an image bearer of God created to co-rule with God by working and keeping everything entrusted to him with the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Now, I want to get practical in this. This is who you are. This is how you are made to be. I want to get practical in this to see what does this mean for us? Because what we find for Adam is he didn't do very well. And this is, this is a moment in his life. Can I just point out to you, Adam is remembered by this moment in his life, but I'm sure my hope, my, my, my prayer is that his whole life wasn't like this, but oftentimes we're defined by moments. And this is a bad moment in his life where he becomes a weak king and he abdicates responsibility. So what do we learn from Adam so that we don't fall into the same trap as men today? Because... We don't want to be a weak king. We don't want to be a tyrant king. We want to be a good king. Right? We want to be the kind of man where, where people look and they say, thank God there's still good men on this earth. That's the goal, right? And so here's what we see from, from Jesus and uh, Paul. Paul was this early Christian who started churches all over the known world. He wrote a third of the New Testament of the scriptures. And they give us some insight on how we apply this this idea and, and, and um, understanding that we get from Adam from our origin story. Jesus told this story once as a metaphor, and, and we can adapt it to our own lives. He said this, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. And so this may sound really weird at first, but, but let's just think about it. Uh, if my home is protected, and it is, because we have an alarm system called Six Hour P320, and it has 17 rounds of hollow points in it, and I have an extra magazine to go along with it, so our house is protected. If our house is protected, that means that the possessions within my home, within my kingdom, are protected. And this isn't just physical possessions, TVs and, and, and computers, but this is the people who are inside of my home. And so if someone tries to break into my home, as the king of my home, I have protected our home, and that person will not escape, okay? If they're trying to do us harm, all right? Don't be scared. Uh, this place is protected in the same way. 
So you try something funny, just letting you know, don't, okay? Uh, anyway, so my home is protected. But what Jesus says is this, if somebody stronger comes in and overpowers me, and there's, and there's another time, there's two other times in the scriptures where Jesus tells the same story, and um, in those times, he, he adds this detail, that if someone stronger comes in, he will overpower that strong man who's protecting his kingdom, and he'll tie him up, he'll bind him, which makes him useless, right? And so if someone stronger comes in and uh, takes the armor in which I'm trusting in, again, uh, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Again, Jesus also says, and he'll tie him up so that he can no longer protect, provide, and preside. And so if someone stronger than me comes in and they overpower me, then they divide up the plunder. That's what I'm saying. That when, when someone stronger comes in, what he's saying is that that person will divide up the plunder. Essentially what he'll do is he'll take your stuff and use it like it's his. And so if you're protecting your home and someone stronger comes in, he takes away the armor, the thing that you're using to protect yourself, and he will divide up your plunder. He will use everything that is near and dear to you as his. And so your wife is his, your son is his, your daughter is his to do with whatever he pleases to do. And so this is the story that Jesus is saying. And then... What we find is that the intruder Jesus is talking about is not a physical intruder. This is true about a physical intruder, and maybe some of us would be ready for a physical intruder. You've prepared, you've stocked up, you've gone to the gym, you've powered up, you're ready for a physical intruder. That'd be easier. But what we find is that the intruder who's coming against us is not a physical intruder. And this intruder who's coming against each and every one of us, not just men, but women as well, but let me talk specifically to men. There is an intruder who's coming to you. He's coming after you, looking to attack you. And his goal is to wreck and wreak havoc in your life, to ravage everything that you hold dear, to claim it as his, to tie you up so you are powerless to protect those within your kingdom. And we find out, who this intruder is from Paul, this early church leader. He says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The invader, the intruder that Jesus is referring to and that Paul points to is Satan, the devil. If that sounds weird, I get it. Look, I'm not asking you to believe in some guy with a red suit, horns, and a pitchfork. But you know the devil's real, because you've experienced his work in your life. You've experienced his work in your life, because you're trapped in an addiction right now. That's him working. You keep going back to making those bad choices yet again. You know what you should do, and you don't do it. That's him winning yet again. You've experienced the devil's work in your life. Because a relationship broke up, because somebody fell at some point in your life, and that was Satan taking them out, and it scarred you, and it hurt you, and it wounded you. You and I, man, we, we've experienced the schemes of the devil. We've seen it in our own lives. 
and we've fallen victim to what he's done. And men, I, I want you to remember that, that you and I, we have a mission. Here, here's our mission again. A man is an image bearer of God, created to co-rule with God by working and keeping everything entrusted to him with the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. But if you're not careful, your enemy will come in and distract you and sidetrack you so that you get involved in a shadow mission. See, your mission is to be an image bearer of God, to co-rule with God, to work and keep everything entrusted to you with the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. That's your mission. And the enemy, the devil comes in and he wants to tempt you to attempt to have you get on a shadow mission where you're living for something other than that, where you're giving your life to something different than the mission God has called you to. And so I wanna ask you men, What's a shadow mission that you're engaged in right now? What are you giving yourself to beyond this mission that God has you on? What's the shadow mission you're engaging in? Is it to make as much money as you can so that you can spend it all on yourself? Is it for you to get sexual satisfaction no matter what? Is it to get really good at video games? Is it to be so politically versed that you can win any argument? Is it to have a family that looks good in photos? Is it to rise up the corporate ladder so that you can show that you have what it takes? Is it to look at porn and masturbate? Is it to numb yourself or escape by whatever means necessary? Is your shadow mission to read a lot of books to show how intellectual you are? Is it to get really good at your hobby? Is it to look really good in front of a mirror? What's your side mission? What's your shadow mission that the enemy has come in and distracted you from so that you're not living out the mission God has called you to? That's how he works. This is our enemy's approach. And here's the deal. Your enemy has a very specific plan for you. He has a specific plan for every man in this room. And not just every man, but every woman. But I want to focus on the men. He has a plan for you. And his plan for you is different than his plan for you. And it's not the same plan for you. And it's not the same plan for you. And it's not the same plan for you. His plan for you is specific to your weakness. And he has a plan for each and every man in here. Because what he wants to do is he wants to take you out. You have an enemy who's coming against you, and he wants to take you out. Your enemy is saying, I want to take you out so that I can break in and wreak havoc on everything you hold dear, so that I can have my way with your wife, with your daughter, with your son, with everything you care about. I'm going to take you out. And he's not playing games with you. He's not messing around. He wants to destroy you. But we're engaged in some shadow mission. And it's because of that we cannot haphazardly be the king over our kingdom, but we got to prepare for war. This is what Paul says, or John, Jesus actually, recorded by John, he says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy you have an enemy who wants to steal from you, who wants to kill you, and who wants to destroy everything you hold dear. And so woe to the man who's been caught sleeping. Woe to the man 
who's let down his guard. Woe to the man who's haphazardly watches over and leads and guards and protects and cares for those in his kingdom. Because if you do this haphazardly, if you're not aware of your enemy who's coming against you, the outcome is the same as Adam's. And Adam was taken out. And we know that Adam was a weak king. He was a masochistic warrior. He was a lazy complainer and a detached lover, at least in this moment of weakness that we see. And we know this because when he was faced with responsibility, he abdicated responsibility. He blamed someone else. He shunned his obligation. And he didn't become the king God called him to be. And because Adam let his guard down, because he didn't prepare for war, the enemy, ex the enemy ex exercised his plan and he took Adam out and he divided and conquered his wife. Genesis 3.1, now the serpent, this is the anthropomorphic uh, image of the devil, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat fruit from the tree? In the garden, any tree in the garden? The woman said, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you'll die. You'll not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her. The whole time Eve is having this conversation with the serpent, Adam is with her. He's right there. He hasn't prepared for war. He hasn't said, shut up, stop talking to snakes. He hasn't said, let's just cut the head off of this snake. No, he's standing there like this, listening. And he lets her lead the way. And then she hands it to him. He's like, okay, I guess I will. He abdicates responsibility. He lets his guard down. And the enemy takes him out. And because Adam was taken out, Everybody suffered. And this is your experience in your life, isn't it? There was a man who got taken out and it wounded you. It hurt you. Because that man wasn't a good king. He became a tyrannical king and he abused you and he ran right over you and it's wounded you and scarred you. He was supposed to love you and care for you and lead you, but instead he ran right into you. And there's a wound there because that man got taken out. There's a man you needed to protect you. You needed for him to step up. You needed for him to lead the way, but he abdicated. He was a weak king, and because of that, you were wounded because you didn't get what you needed from that man. That's how it works. If Satan can take you out, he can take out everybody else in your kingdom. He wants to come in and divide and conquer. He wants to plunder everything that you care about. If he can take you out, he can hurt your wife. He can hurt your kids. He can hurt everything you care about. That's why you got to be on guard. That's why you got to prepare for war. That's why we can't play games with this stuff. Because you have a very real enemy who is coming against you.
and he's plotting and planning to take you out. Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Listen, if you had a physical enemy, then it'd be easy to get some guns, some knives, to power up at the gym, and to prepare for war like that. But we can't prepare for war like that, because our enemy is spiritual, and he's coming to take us out in the spiritual realm by getting us sidetracked and distracted on shadow missions so that we let down our guard, and we let him in our house, in our kingdom, to run roughshod over everything that we care about. We can't do that. So how do we fight him? We prepare for war. How do we prepare for war? Ephesians 6, 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, and you have to put it on. Nobody's going to put it on for you. You can't come to church and get it put on. You can't have your wife put it on for you. You can't have somebody praying for you to put it on for you. You have to put it on. Nobody's going to do it for you. You have to be intentional. You have to act. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, not if, but when, when your son feels so insecure and depressed, he can't even, he doesn't even want to live anymore. When your daughter believes she's worth nothing, when the day of comes, when the day comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand. So stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is how we resist. And next week, we're going to dive deeper into this paragraph, and we're going to break it apart and apply it. But for now, you know that it's time to prepare for war. And you can't sit passively by. You can't approach this haphazardly. You can't watch over your kingdom like no enemy is coming, because the enemy has schemes and tactics that he's implementing to take you out and to take out everything you care about. And so men... Let me ask you, are you ready to rise? Are you ready to stand firm? Are you ready to take ownership and responsibility for those in your kingdom? Are you ready to rise up and protect, provide, and preside over those God has entrusted to you? Because there's an enemy coming after you, and he wants to take you out. He wants to leave you weak and weakened and battered and bruised. He wants to have his way with everything in your kingdom. And so it's time to rise. It's time to stand firm. It's time to prepare for war by putting on the full armor of God. We've got to prepare for war. Because I the know God who the goes Lord before me. It's all around I us. I know He's who stands behind. You're not in this alone.